All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of The Big Questions. I'm your host, Big John, and we've got a super exciting show today. I can't wait to get to it, so I'm not going to bother you with any of my usual nonsense before we get started. Let's get right into talking with our guest. Uh, I'm going to look away a second here just to make sure I get it all because he's so distinguished and has such an expansive uh, career and experience. I don't want to miss anything. My guest today is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. He was born and raised in Laredo, Texas. He received his uh, undergraduate degree in economics uh, from VMI, his law degree from the University of Texas. Um, he has been active in politics. He's run for the Senate and for president of the U.S., both as a member of the Libertarian Party, uh, as well as being a nominee for this year's uh, uh, Libertarian Party nomination. Uh, he's also served in the U.S. military, and he's also taught at the university level. Everyone, please, uh, a very nice welcome to Mr. Jacob Hornberger. Jacob, how are you today? Fine, thank you, John. Thank you for the yeah, nice introduction. Thank you, sir. And it is a great honor to, to get this opportunity to talk to you, uh, just having known people who have uh, participated in libertarian philosophy and politics all these years. So, so thank you for joining us. Uh, let's start right off. How or when did you fall into your libertarian philosophy and mindset? How, how did that journey begin for you? Well, as you pointed out, John, and thank you again for having me on, on your show. I'm very appreciative and very honored to be here. Uh, I was... Uh, I grew up in a town on the border named Laredo, Texas, and I grew up on a farm there on the Rio Grande. And so most everybody in Texas at that time was a Democrat, and my dad was active in Democratic Party politics. So I grew up as a Democrat. And when I returned home to practice law in partnership with my dad, I was a liberal Democrat. I believed that government should be helping the poor. I became the ACLU representative in Laredo. I was on the Legal Aid Board of Trustees, which provided free legal assistance to the poor. And so there was no question in my mind that, that this was a legitimate role for government. And of course, Laredo at that time was an extremely poor city. We were told that it, we were the poorest city in the United States per capita income. And then one day I, was, I went into the public library looking for something to read. I was in my late 20s. This was in the late 1970s. And I came across four little different colored books called Essays on Liberty there in the political science section. And I pulled one volume one off the shelf and started thumbing through it. And it was a true road to Damascus experience. I mean, these were hardcore, purist, no compromise libertarian essays by some of the giants in the libertarian movement. And I was bowled over. I mean, immediately all the indoctrination that it, my mind had been encased in since the first grade just started cracking apart. And I started realizing that I'd been lied to all these years about living in a free society. And so um, that was the turning point for me. Libertarian, the law had been my real passion up to that point. But from that day forward, libertarianism became my passion. And that's a very interesting story. And I'll tell you, I, I do like asking my guests how they arrived at their libertarianism. Because there seems to be this notion, uh, I think, generally accepted that uh, libertarians are Republicans who want to smoke dope, right? You hear that refrain a lot. Uh, and there does seem to be this perception that were it not for libertarians, for the libertarian party, rather, libertarians would be Republicans or conservatives. And I love asking my libertarian guests how they arrived. You clearly came to libertarianism from the left. Uh, 
uh, I'm a I'm a particular case of someone who came to libertarianism from the right. Uh, but it's very interesting to always hear people how they arrived there and what it was that triggered the libertarianism. For some people, it's burdensome regulation. For others, it's an intellectual exercise. You know, like you said, reading those essays. Uh, so thank you for that answer. Uh, of all your varied experiences, uh, as, as I said, you were uh, a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army Reserves. You are an attorney. Uh, now you're a politician slash activist, uh, if I can use those terms. Which of those things really solidified as you, as you, as you uh, traversed your life? Which one of those have more solidified your belief in libertarianism? Is it having to deal with the law as it exists and the injustices there? Is it more running for office, you know, the more practical, the dirty work of running for office? Which one has solidified your belief in libertarianism the most, would you say? Well, they, of course, they all interrelate. My law back, I practiced law for 12 years as a trial attorney, and it certainly has impacted my life in terms of libertarianism because it provides a nice... Uh, legal background to libertarian issues, but what imp has impacted my my life most has been the intellectual case the uh, for libertarianism, and this is what has defined my life. I went, I finally left the the law practice because I got offered a job with the one of the first, if not the first, libertarian educational foundation, and that's called the Foundation for Economic Education in New York. And so I moved from Texas to New York, and after a couple of years there, I decided to start the Future of Freedom Foundation, my own libertarian educational foundation, with the mission of presenting a very principled and compromising case. And that's what I've done for 34 years, and, and it has been the most gratifying thing that one can ever imagine. I mean, I, I cannot imagine ever retiring. I love what I do in my life. I, I, just, I, I love getting up in the morning to go to work. And uh, it's been the passion of my life. I'm just very, very grateful. God has really blessed me. Um, along with that came the political activity, but more as a sidelight. I, I don't like politics as much as I do the, the ideological arena, the foundation arena, because, as you know, it's a very nasty business in that politics yes, area. And uh, I, I don't enjoy that part of it. Um, but I, I think the Libertarian Party plays a critically important role in the advancement of liberty. And so it's been very gratifying to play a role there. I served three terms on the platform committee beginning back in the early 1990s. I've run for office there uh, uh, as uh, seeking the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. And uh, so it, it's, it all works hand in hand, but it's the intellectual case, the ideological case for libertarianism that has impacted my life the most. And I love that you say that, and I'll tell you why. Right here at Grumblings Media, my partner and I, you'll find us arguing nearly every day between the two of us on that very issue. Uh, I am sort of from cut from your cloth, where I think libertarianism is a much more powerful force when it's presented as an intellectual case, the case for freedom, the case for individual liberty, as opposed to the compromise, the dirty work, as you said, that's involved in politics. Now, having said that, you're running for office to, get, to be the president of the United States. Where do you see the role of the Libertarian Party to be the most impactful and perhaps its goal, which is, is, is should the focus of the Libertarian Party be to win elections, to get people elected, 
or should it be to convince people of the virtues of liberty? Now, I understand the, the ideal situation would be both, right? But given your, what you just stated, given the fact that you are running for president, how do you view the role of the Libertarian Party like that? The role of the Libertarian Party is to lead America to freedom. Uh, that is its mission, and we often lose sight of that. Um, there are people in the party that say, no, 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 our job is to get people elected to public office. That has never been the legitimate position of the Libertarian Party. Um, you, your mission is to lead America to freedom and in the process, run for office. The, the running for office is the means. It is not the goal. And the problem with making it the, the, the goal is that all too many LP members that run for office um, decide that they need to compromise libertarian principles in order to expand vote totals. And when you do that, you've defeated the mission of the Libertarian Party, which is to lead America to freedom. We can only lead America to freedom with libertarian principles. And so we got to put the, the cart before the horse. The, the cart is leading this country to a free society. And then in the process, using our principles to convince people of the virtues of this philosophy in order to shift away from the system under which we live to a genuinely free society. I happen to agree with you 100%, by the way. And I love that you formulated the answer in that, in that fashion. But let me ask you this, and let's, let's expand it a little bit uh, before we get to your policy positions. Um, what's, a, what's happening with the Libertarian Party now? Uh, do you, so I would venture a guess to say that you consider yourself uh, a Mises person, uh, uh, for lack of a, you know, just for the sake of putting a label on you. Do you find that the Libertarian Party now, with its more aggressive messaging, is on the right path to accomplishing what you see the goal of the Libertarian Party to be? Do you feel that it's counterproductive? For example, if I were to say, hey, the leadership has taken on this aggressive messaging, uh, they don't mind offending or ruffling a few feathers in order to get their message across, do you feel that's productive to your what you see the Libertarian Party doing, which is to spread the message of liberty, to show the proper path to providing liberty? Uh, you know, their argument might be, we're trying to win elections. We're cutting deals, say, with Republican candidates where we can't win in order to get something in return, you know, playing that political game. Uh, like I believe happened in Arizona, like I believe happened in Colorado. Um, give me a little bit of your, if you can, your opinion on that. Like, do you think that this new sort of uh, tone from the LP national leadership is productive or counterproductive? Counterproductive. Counterproductive. So it's interesting that I'm assuming that you would align with the current leadership's uh, intellectual positions on libertarianism, right? Like true not even minarchist, right? You're, for the most part, you're, for and we'll get into it a little bit later, uh, eliminating most of the government oversight and things of that nature, getting rid of entangling alliances and things like that. But the, do you feel it's the leadership's principles that are counterproductive or their specific messaging of those principles? Both. Interesting. I mean, here, here's the situation, um, John. Uh, the... Let's 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 focus on the national level, the yes. congressional races, races for Senate, races for U.S. House, uh, races for president. Um, the fact is that these candidates get garner 
1%, of the votes. And they've been doing that for about 25 years. That translates into the fact that 98 to 99% of the American electorate rejects the message put out by these candidates. And yet we continue running candidates with the same message, with the idea that if we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, we're finally going to get a different result. And, and we hear these little mantras like, well, I think everybody's a libertarian. They just haven't discovered it. Or everybody's got a libertarian streak in them. Well, if that's true, then why do 98 to 99% of the American electorate continue to reject this message that is being put out? Well, nobody wants to consider the possibility that maybe it's just a bad message. Because you see, I fall into that 98, 99% category too. I reject their message. Uh, it's a bad message, and the electorate has figured that out. Um, now, why is it a bad message? Well, because it's all oriented toward reforming the welfare warfare state way of life. And so it's a boring message. It's a non-provocative message. It's, I consider it a non-libertarian message, but for the last 25 to 30 years, that has been the focus of the party. Uh, reform education, school vouchers, reform health care with health savings accounts. Don't even think about abolishing Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security. Come up with these Rube Goldberg schemes to reform these programs. Reform the NSA, reform the CIA, reform, 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 reform. And that's a bad message. And, and I always vote libertarian. And, and for example, when Joe defeated me three years ago for the nomination, I got up and I endorsed her. And I voted for her, and I voted for Gary Johnson. And if any of my opponents defeat me in this race for the nomination, I'll, I'll vote for them. But I reject their message. I'm with the 98 to 99%. That what the, the, the core problem with this party is the challenge this party has. It needs to restore its original libertarian brand of principled libertarianism. Get rid of this reforming the welfare, warfare, state way of life. It's like reforming slavery. You know, if we go back to 1855 Alabama, these people would be saying, Jacob, we can't run a candidate that calls for abolishing slavery. That's just too radical. We're going to lose votes that way. We need to reform slavery, come up with fewer lashings and better work conditions. And I'm sitting there saying, no, no, no. We stand for abolishing slavery regardless of the vote totals. And so that's where I think the party's gone wrong is it, it continues to put out a bad message, and until they get back to restoring the original libertarian brand, there's going to be continue to be conflict and tension and, and arguments and fights within this party. And if, if you could indulge in me one more minute here to explain. Sure, absolutely. That, you know, I told you that being in the foundation world was the most important thing for me. That's what's impacted my life. In fact, I, I, over the years, I've had people say, you've changed the course of my life with your articles and your books. I've never had anybody say, your political candidacy changed the course of my life. <laughs> I mean, that's just the nature of politics. But right. in 1990, when I, when I founded FFF, I got a telephone call from, from a guy named Bill Evers, who is an activist in, in the LP from California, inviting me to serve on the platform committee. And I said, nope, not interested. Thank you, Bill. And he says, well, why not? And I, I didn't know anything about the Libertarian Party or very much about the party. So he, I, I said, well, this is a political party. You guys are compromising libertarian principles to get votes. It's just an ad hoc positions of this and that. 
all designed to get votes. And he goes, have you ever read the party platform? And I said, no, and I don't need to. I know what it is. It's just a collection of ad hoc positions, compromises to get votes. So he says, let me send you the platform. And I said, send it on. So a few days later, I opened my mail, and there it is. And I start reading it through this thing, John, and I'm overwhelmed. I'm bowled over. This is a pure libertarian manifesto that could have been written by Murray Rothbard, a libertarian giant, as you know, and Ludwig von Mises. And I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. And so I called him up and I said, you know, I didn't ask him how many members they had. I didn't ask him how much money they had, how many votes they'd gotten in the last election. All, none of that mattered to me. What mattered to me was this was a party of genuine principle, and I wanted to be part of that party. And so I agreed to serve on the platform committee. I ended up serving three terms. But right away, I noticed that there was this faction that was coming into the party saying, our job is to win elections. We need to water down this platform. We need to delete provisions like abolishing the FBI or abolishing the CIA, which is losing us respect among Republican voters. It was always, the orientation was always toward getting Republican votes. And my argument was, oh no, we need our platform to protect us from those candidates that are out there supporting the Persian Gulf War or supporting sanctions against Iraq or whatever. Our platform can then be used if the media comes to us and says, is this what y'all really believe? No. And here is our platform. And so that's what I'm saying we need to restore in this party because this message of reform is a bad message. And the electorate have figured that out. I am convinced that a sound message will, will prevail. And, and I proved this three years ago when I ran for, for this party's nomination, I decided to enter the presidential primaries in which the LP was, was involved. Uh, now, these were not binding. I knew that. I ended up losing the nomination, but I won seven out of nine primaries, John. And, and my, my objective was to say, look, this uncompromising principle case for liberty is a vote winner. It's not a vote loser. Uh, and I proved it with winning seven out of nine primaries. I came in second in the eighth. And then 20 years ago, I ran for Senate, as you mentioned, and I had this same principled and compromising message. I was running against the most popular governor uh, in Virginia's history, John Warner, who had been married to the, uh, to the actress Elizabeth Taylor, and he was chairman of the Armed Services Committee. This is right after 9-11, and I'm over there pointing to U.S. interventionism as the cause of 9-11, uh, motivated the terrorists, which, as you know, was not a very popular position, especially among conservatives or Republicans. There was no Democrat running, uh, but no Democrat was going to run, was going to vote for me because I was calling for the abolition of Social Security and Medicare right, and the whole right, welfare state. Right. I got 7% of the vote. Over 100,000 people voted for me, John. And I got the endorsement of one of the most prominent black ministers in the, in the country. Why? Not because I'm any great person, because I'm not, but because people like this message. It's a winner right. message. So that's a long-winded answer to your question as to what this party needs to do to get back on track. And that's, you know, I, it's not long-winded. Thank you for taking the time to explain your thoughts on that, because I, I, I've always held that we do a lot of disservices as, as a libertarian party. One of them is this constant need to define ourselves in the terminology and, and, and the thinking of the duopoly. I, I can't tell you, I get visibly, you could see me shake if someone says, well, a libertarian is someone who's fiscally conservative and socially <laughs> liberal, right? And I'm like, no, you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I, whenever anyone says 
how do you how do libertarian i say up or down you're either up with liberty or you're down with uh government coercion that's it i do not attempt to do it well we're right on this, these issues we're left on these issues we're liberal on these issues we're conservative on these issues because i think that 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 mindset still defines our ourselves in in the duopoly and the statist mindset and and i think we need to get away from that so i certainly understand what you're saying the question i guess is are you better off influencing so uh, I, forgive me for stumbling a little bit here but democracy as a mechanism for running a government is horrible it's just the least horrible of the ones historically tried thus far um how do you use a mechanism like democracy even in a even in a limited republic to accomplish the goals of freedom jacob like you yourself you're you're running for president you you know i understand that you're getting out there your main objective is let me tell you about liberty let me tell you why liberty is the way to go why that should be our goal as a people right uh you're trying to persuade you're trying to influence but in trying to get votes you're you're necessarily constraining yourself in a in an essentially anti-liberty construct are you not i don't think so i don't think so at all now if if you're if you're targeting republicans for votes which is what most of the LP it orients toward uh, that they many years ago, they started a big campaign to get disgruntled Republicans to come in and join the party. And unfortunately, many of those Republicans brought their baggage with them, like on immigration controls or, or compromising libertarian principles to get votes. It, if you're targeting that group, then you're right. You're absolutely right. You're, you're constraining yourself because, you know, I, as, as you may know, I favor totally open borders. That's just one example. What chance do I have to garner votes within the Republican Party with, with that position? Zero. Exactly. Zero. So I don't care. That, that doesn't concern me at all. In fact, I don't even look at it as a duopoly. I know I hear that term always in the Libertarian Party. I see it as a monopoly. This is one party divided into two wings. The Welfare Warfare Party. It's like the NFL. You know, right. you know about the NFL, right, John? No, big time, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's one league divided into two conferences, right? Right, right. Okay, right. well, that's that's this welfare warfare state party. So the same with the Democrats. Then I call for the abolition of Social Security. What what are the chances are they going to vote for me or seniors? You know, right. th th this whole idea of coming up with a complicated plan to save Social Security is designed to get seniors to vote for us. Big news. Seniors are never going to vote for libertarians, okay? Right, Unless they're right. libertarian seniors. Right. What I argue is that there is a force out there that is just waiting to surface, and they just need a catalyst. That force is the 50% of people who don't vote. Mm. That is a gold mine for us. It's a powerful, potential force. But the only way it's going to start shaking is if they're convinced that there's a candidate that opposes the whole system, that isn't interested in reforming the system, fixing the system, that stands against both Democrats and Republicans and is willing to take them on. I'm convinced that that force will start to shake if we run a presidential candidate that adheres strictly to libertarian principles and says, we're going to dismantle that little beloved system that is plundering it and looting you and destroying your life and your liberty. I think that's wonderful. And it kind of echoes what I've heard some other libertarian, uh, prominent libertarians say in the party, like Spike Cohen, for example, uh, 
uh, once said to me, the Libertarian Party needs to be the leading edge of politics. It needs to be the bleeding edge. The same way uh, Apple or certain uh, gadget, technological gadgets appeal to the crowd that always wants the newest thing, even if it's not fully baked yet. They want the latest uh, phone. They want the latest computer. They want the latest PC game. They, they want the latest holograms, right? And they'll wait online. You see them lined up around a store three days beforehand, right? Or to see their favorite new uh, rock band or whatever. And he said the Libertarian Party needs to take that approach, that we need to appeal to the people who are looking for that swift, sudden change, the early adopters. And I think that aligns with what you said about the 50% of, of Americans that don't bother to vote. Even, that they're just so disgusted with their lives and their politics that they, they just don't even bother to vote. Uh, so I think that your, your, your thought on this is, is compelling, is very compelling to, to, for the Libertarian Party. So well, if I, could, if I could share with you another little anecdote yeah. in, involving Spike Cohen, you, 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 you made me think about him that when I was running for the nomination last time, uh, I decided to run an active campaign in North Carolina where we were in the primaries, which I ended up winning. But my point is that we should be targeting as a group, black Americans, because that, you know, they have been, I think paid the biggest price for this welfare warfare state way of life, you know, conscripted to go to Vietnam, given being sacrificed for a needless war. The drug war has fallen disproportionately on African-Americans. So the one of the Libertarian parties in North Carolina, at my suggestion, formed a, 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 a door-knocking campaign where we decided to go door-knocking. Now, this is the poorest neighborhood in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. I mean, public housing and everything. I mean, it, it's all black. N- from what they told me, no politician, no white politician at least, had ever gone there and asked for their votes. So we put this thing together. Spike came and joined us. I invited all the other presidential candidates to join us. They couldn't be bothered. They, they, this yeah. was, for them, this was senseless. I cannot tell you the reaction of people in this neighborhood, John. I mean, it was so effusive. People were coming up. Word was spreading that we were campaigning there. One guy came up and said, Mr. Hornberger, I'm going to vote for you. The fact that you're here. I'm going to come and vote for you. I'm going to get all, all my friends to vote for you because our flyers talked about the drug war and the and the the large sentences that were meet, getting meted out to blacks. I also went to the bus station there in in Raleigh where I campaigned among people, and these were all mostly 99% black and and poor. They're using the bus to get to work. In my conversations with them, John, they had a better handle on what's going on in this country than your average white middle-class person in America. It was fascinating. That's who we should be targeting for votes. Forget the Republicans. Forget the Democrats. Go after that demographic. Go after the disaffected. Go after the people who have been put down most by the current system. I agree with you. It it makes perfect sense. Listen, even my partner here who, full disclosure, William Del Pilar, uh, he a Latino uh, gentleman, uh, but he's staunchly conservative. But I hear the same thing from him when he talks about the failure of the Republican Party, of the conservatives, with their outreach to Latinos and uh, African-Americans specifically. Nobody from their party goes to those neighborhoods, like you mentioned. Nobody, uh, forget white or black or Latino, just nobody from that party will go to the poorest neighborhoods, will knock on those doors, will attempt to explain those positions. Uh, so I, I, I do see that, 
maybe not so much from the Democrats, but but definitely from Republicans and Libertarians, there is that sort of avoidance to go to the poor neighborhoods and to go to the most disaffected uh, and do that legwork. So it is it, it is heartening to hear you say that you participate in that, and and certainly that Spike was willing to join you in that. Uh, you know, I think very highly of Spike as well. So uh, that's good to hear. Okay, uh, I want I love this conversation, but I do want to. Um, move on to your policy positions, give you a chance to espouse those positions that you've been referring to and see if we can uh, put across some concepts of liberty to our viewers. Okay. Uh, when it comes to economics, you espouse the complete rejection of economic regulations. Uh, let me play devil's advocate here. Uh, Jacob, if we get rid of the FDA, if we get rid of uh, 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 the oversight of environmental regulations, anything that will affect business, who will protect us from evildoers? Who will protect us uh, from people who do not have our best interests at heart, from the hucksters, from the con artists? How will we How will we have any protection, Jacob, if there's no regulation? Well, it's hard. we have to distinguish between evildoers. Uh, when, when I think of evildoers, <clears throat> I'm thinking of the people that are initiating force or fraud uh, against other people or or destroying the rights of other people, like murderers and rapists and thieves and robbers and so forth. And that's where I say government's role comes into play, that, that we want government to go after these people that initiate force or fraud against others. Uh, but with respect to people that are just engaged in peaceful activity, they should be free to do that. Now, with respect to economic regulation, the notion is that government is protecting us from big business or whatever. Right. People don't need protection from big business or some corporation because they have the choice of just not doing business with businesses that don't treat them well. So if somebody is running an, a business, uh, let's say where there's liquid all over the floors, it's unsafe, People tend to shun that kind of business and they go to a competitor and that business goes out of business. So the free market is its own regulator. The, right. the, 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 the businesses that don't satisfy consumers, they go out of business. Uh, with respect to the environment, the last thing we want is to have government in charge of, of protecting the environment. Remember, you know, with, with this movie Oppenheimer, we, we get reminded that this is the great nuclear polluter we're dealing with. I mean, this, is, this is the regime that exploded nuclear bombs in the in the atmosphere numerous times, which is still falling down, still infecting people, uh, and and then exploded bombs underground. No telling what, how much damage that did. I'm going to put the environment there in their hands. So what I say is, let's separate economy and the state completely, just as our ancestors separated church and state, uh, and and just get government totally out of the business of economic activity. This is what Adam Smith, who wrote the first treatise on economics, raised. That's what free enterprise means, enterprise that is totally free of government control or regulation. Well, I agree with you that. But here's what, what you know, because part of my little effort for libertarianism is um, having worked in ad agencies most of my life, um, surrounded by younger people than myself, I always took the time to talk to them about libertarianism. And surprisingly, a large appetite for it. But a few of the things that stick in their craw is, for example, this. For example, I would say we need to get rid of occupational licensing. The first question that comes back, you mean anyone can be a doctor? Anyone can practice medicine? Don't we need protection from the quacks? 
right? So I think most people are on board with that message, Jacob. Like, I, do we need a license for someone to walk dogs? Do we need a dog white walker's license? Do we need a florist's license? Do we need a hair cutter's license? You're right. The free market easily takes care of those situations. If someone cuts my hair once and does a lousy job, I'm not going back to them. And word will spread. People tend to think the stakes are higher with something like medicine, for example. Primarily medicine seems to be the one that's the big sticking point for people when you talk about getting rid of something like occupational uh, licensing. Uh, talk to me about that very specifically to try to put people at ease, that when you tell them we're going to get rid of occupational licensing, how would you respond to that? Well, the there, as you know, there was a famous economist, free market economist, libertarian named Milton Friedman. Uh, sure. who, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. And Friedman decided to address this point from a free market standpoint, libertarian standpoint. And he said, you know, if I, if I use shoeshine people as an example or hairdressers or whatever, it's not going to have the same impact. Uh, that what, When you're going to take a case on like this, you've got to take the toughest case on. And the toughest case is the one that you raise, medical licensure. I mean, and, and you're right. The standard line is, oh, you're going to have a quack, do brain surgery. Right. Well, so Friedman wrote an excellent essay that I would recommend to everybody on, on occupational licensure or medical licensure that, that tackles this particular issue. And the idea is that nobody's going to force anybody to go to a quack for brain surgery, that you choose who you want to go through. And, and the, the fact that there's no licensure doesn't mean that there's not going to be recommendations. You could still have the American Medical Association saying, here are recommendations. You go to your family physician, which is what people do anyway today. Uh, and who do you recommend for my brain tumor that I need to get operated on? Or you do re your own research. Uh, I don't know of very many people to say, well, that guy's got a license, so I, so I guess he's okay. And so the, the license is really superfluous. Um, it, it's like uh, Underwriters Laboratory is another example. This is a private certification agency that certifies electrical stuff in houses and so forth. And uh, you, you want that certification. But people should be free to make their own choices in life. If they want alternative health care that is not licensed by the state, they should be free to do that. If they want to go another way than chemotherapy or radiation to treat their cancer, they should be free to do that. That people should be free to make these decisions on their own. And people should be free to engage in any occupation they want without governmental permission. Let the consumers decide. As I, I told, yeah, as I sorry, told you earlier, I was a lawyer. And, okay, to be a lawyer, <laughs> you have to be licensed. Now, you'll never convince me that licensure guarantees ethical and competent attorneys, okay? Right. But it lulls people into thinking, oh, he's got a license. He must know what he's doing. Well, such is not the case. We just need to get rid of this. This It's really a racket. It's a protection yes. racket for the medical industry, including doctors, for lawyers, for shoeshine people. It's a racket to limit the supply of competitors to up their, their artificially up their income. We got to get You're rid of that monopoly. You're absolutely right, and I agree with you, and that's a great explanation. Also, your your solution, Milton Friedman's solution, which I believe he directly stated was, you can still have private uh, recommendation boards like the AMA. Um, you know, a, a perfect example, not as critical, but certainly applicable to me. At one point in my career, I wanted to be a professional project manager. As you may or may not know, uh, there's, a, there's an organization that issues PMPs, 
and you have to take a test. It's like a six hour test. You have to prove that you know all these principles of proper, pro, you know, once you get that sort of certificate from them, they charge you a decent fee every year to maintain it. And the only way that you could say that you're a project management professional, because they've trademarked that term, is to get their certification. But what I like about it is employers have the option of saying, I want to hire someone with that certificate, or I want to hire someone who doesn't have that certificate, but has proven to me they have that skill set. So to this day, I don't mention to anyone that I have their stupid certificate. Uh, and it's been 25 years, and I've never re-upped re after the first time. Because after the first time, as I went through my employment history, I would just say, yeah, I, I managed these 10 projects worth a couple of million bucks each, and no, no complaints. You can Here's my references, you know? Nobody once ever said to me, do you actually have that certificate, right? So, uh, so it's interesting, and I do see that, that even though it's, it, it's, it's a little frightening to people to say, I could have an unlicensed doctor, much like yourself, I would say, when was the last time you asked your physician to show you their government-issued <laughs> license? I've never done that in my life, right? I see their degree from Harvard or Yale or whatever. That might be good enough for me, but I've never asked for their professional license. Okay. Um, when it comes to free trade, sanctions, embargoes, tariffs, uh, I certainly understand that position uh, that originated with Smith and Hayek and, and Friedman. For our audience, explain to us, uh, especially in today's environment, why are tariffs bad? Why is it a bad idea when someone like President Trump gets up there, former President Trump, and says, we need strong tariffs against China, against Mexico, because they're flooding us with cheap services, goods and services. We need tariffs. They don't accept our goods. We accept theirs. We, we have to tax that. Why is that a bad idea, Jacob? Isn't it good to protect American companies and American workers? Well, first of all, let me let me say that anybody wants to read Milton Friedman's essay, it's in his book, Capitalism and Freedom. And we've also published the essay on the Future Freedom Foundation's website. Just Google medical licensure uh, sure. there on our site. To, to answer this question, uh, John, in, in, as you know, in every trade, both sides benefit. Uh, it's just an axiom that if you and I enter into an exchange, we're both going to benefit from our per own personal perspective because... A voluntary exchange. Correct? A voluntary exchange, voluntary yeah. exchange, yes. Because we're both giving up something that we value less for something we value more from our own subjective perspective. So you can have standards of living of people rise without even any industries around just through the process of exchange because you're improving your standard of living every time you enter into an exchange. Right. Well, that principle applies to whomever you're trading with, whether they're a New Yorker and you're a Virginian or a Mexican or a Chinese or a Russian, you're improving your standard of living. So people around the world can increase their standard of living by engaging in consensual mutual trades with everyone else. So the corollary of this is to the extent that government interferes with this process, they're lowering people's standard of living. Not to mention the fact that they're destroying their economic liberty too, because you have a right to use your money the way you want, to trade with whomever you want anywhere in the world. A tariff is just a tax. That's all it is. It's a tax. It's a sales tax on imported goods. And when Trump initiated this trade war against China, it was the with the idea of degrading China, you know, that, that notion. And, and it does degrade them. It, it causes them more poverty, but it does the same thing for us over here. 
And, and the best proof of that was that American farmers who were selling tons of wheat over there and other products were going bankrupt because they couldn't sell their products. And, and then so Trump ends up bailing <laughs> them out with a welfare payment. Yeah, yeah, and, he had to subsidize them. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, 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 and he didn't realize, he thought the Chinese were paying, paying the tax. He didn't realize that the Americans pay the tax. Now, do you think, I, I'm sorry to diverge a little bit, but since you mentioned it, do you think he really didn't understand that? Or do you think it was a pure populist position to take in order to solidify his, his, his A, getting into office, and B, remaining in office? I, like, I do you really think he, he was that clueless as to think that he could implement these tariffs with absolutely zero repercussions? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I will say this. I, I think the issue goes deeper, though. I, I think the, the Pentagon was insistent on starting this trade war with China. They see China as a rising power. They were mired down in Afghanistan and Iraq. China was prospering. People were becoming wealthy. You had millionaires in China. Who would have thought of that 30 years ago in this Not totally me. socialist? And, and China was reaching out to other countries with peace and friendship and of course, public works, which I would never support. But I think the Pentagon saw this as a grave threat to America's uh, empire. And it wouldn't be surprising at all to me that they pressured Trump into initiating this thing, because Trump's a businessman. You would think he would know better. Uh, and, and, he, and he, you know, builds hotels in foreign countries. Uh, he knows that that's beneficial to him as well as them. Uh, why he initiated this is is a very strange thing for me to understand. But Knowing how I see how the Pentagon and the CIA views the world, I wouldn't be surprised at all that they were behind this thing. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I've always debated, you know, not to focus on Trump, but I've always debated his level of understanding, his, his intellectual level when it comes to these issues. I don't know if he truly understands or if he doesn't care. I, I haven't decided yet. And even to this day, uh, being a native New Yorker, all those years of him, being in the news in New York locally, I still don't understand. I can't understand if he's intellectually stunted or if he understands what his actions create and just doesn't care as long as it benefits him personally. So that's something for everyone to sort of decide. Uh, let's talk about uh, you're for the abolishment of the income tax in the IRS. I think that's a fairly standard libertarian position and all of us can get behind that to some degree. Uh, but let me ask you about sound money. Uh, this concept sometimes confuses people, uh, and a lot of people don't realize it doesn't begin with Nixon taking us off the gold standard, right? This goes way back in in American history, about 100 years, a little more than 100 years. Talk to us, A, what is sound money? B, how would it benefit, benefit us? And C, should, should we move to it immediately? Yeah, the, the, the framers of the Constitution understood the importance of sound money. Uh, they, had, they had experienced the ravages of government-induced inflation. Uh, that was what the continental currency was all about. There was a famous saying that not worth a continental, because when you inflate this paper money, um, it's going to ultimately become valueless. It's going to be losing its value over time. Um, and so they said, we don't want to go through this. And there's a good chance the American people would never have approved the Constitution if there was not sound money guaranteed in it. And so that the money they chose as the official money of the American people was gold coins and silver coins. 
And that produced the soundest money in history. It, it, you, you look back throughout history, you won't find any period like this. It lasted for more than 100 years. It was incredible. And people were investing in 100-year bonds issued by corporations. They weren't worried about whether inflation was going to wipe out their bond because they were, the bonds were payable in gold coins and silver coins. Right. Um, well, then they call the Federal Reserve System into existence in 1913. Um, that starts the big boom in, in um, the 1920s, the roaring 20s. That leads to the stock market crash in 29 when they overcontract the, the debt instruments that they were issuing. And that's when Franklin Roosevelt nationalizes gold uh, right. without even the semblance of a constitutional amendment. He says it is now illegal to own gold coins. Uh, it was a felony offense. Uh, people would serve 10 years in jail. They got caught owning what had been the official money money. And now the official money became paper money, which was irredeemable, still promised to pay. You can still see it says Federal Reserve note, but it promises to pay nothing. And that was the beginning of the debauchery of the, of the dollar, um, irredeemable paper money. And that's the system we live under today, and not to mention the booms and the busts. But if you look at the value of the dollar from 1913 to today, it's just a downward trajectory. Right. And this is what government does. Now, I think that standard, that gold coin, silver coin standard was the second greatest uh, monetary system we could ever come up with, much better than what we have today. But the soundest system is the one that Friedrich Hayek, another libertarian economist who won the Nobel Prize, came up with called the denationalization of money, the total separation of money in the state. Get government totally out of the monetary sphere. Let the free market determine what people are going to use as money. The free market produces the best of everything. And sure. let the market do this. If you hear that noise in the background, it's thunder. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It, it seemed to emphasize your point just perfectly. So um, uh, that's a sign that either God, Mother Nature, or the universe is agreeing with you, Jacob. That's the way I interpreted that. Uh, but uh, just expand a little bit on this because uh, I understand the principles you're, you're referring to. But I want to let people know the the reason uh, debt instruments are horrible as a form of currency is, is because they do lead to that in, to those inflationary press pressures, right? You 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 think you're getting more of something, but in actuality you're not. It's an illusion. Uh, so, do you support, say, returning to some sort of gold silver standard for the U.S.? Do you think we're better served by something like a cryptocurrency, like a Bitcoin, perhaps? Not specifically Bitcoin, if it has any issues in your mind, but something akin to Bitcoin, uh, where you have a fixed supply of uh, a crypto, it can never increase, and you use that as your currency. Is, is that something you support? No. No. That's what I was indicating. I support a system where government has no role at all determining what money is. A, a separation right. of money in the state. Gotcha. where you just let the market operate. And what's the free market? The market is just people operating in the marketplace, you know, buying things, selling things, investing, whatever. They have to use a medium of exchange. Let the market decide what that medium of exchange is. If people want to use gold coins, fine. If people want to use uh, silver coins, fine. They want to use Bitcoins, American Express banknotes. Ultimately, I think the market would move towards something that most people are using in their general everyday transactions. I suspect that could be gold coins or it may be bitcoins, but just let the market decide and get government totally out of the monetary business. Gotcha. 
question out of left field, mainly because I've never heard anyone ask a politician this. How would governments operate their finances now? I understand now how societal, how individuals, you could decouple money from government. You and I can decide that we want to exchange uh, old uh, John Coltrane records as a form of currency to, to, to as an exchange medium. That would be perfectly fine, right? How would governments, intergovernmental uh, finance work in that case? The government would decide which medium of exchange it chose to use. Now, you know me, I, I don't just oppose the, well, I shouldn't say you know me, you, uh, I oppose all taxation. I, I think it's immoral to force people to fund anything they don't want to fund. At, by the same token, I think most people believe government's important. And I, I believe in a system where people can be called upon to voluntarily support government. And um, especially if government's expenditures are minimal, which they would be in my kind of free society because you don't have a welfare state, you don't have a national security state, right. you have a very limited government with very limited functions. So the expenditures are minimal. Rely on voluntary support where people want to donate uh, their gold coins or their silver coins or their bitcoins and the government can say, hey, we need your support. And then government operates within the constraints of the amount of money that they have received. I think that's the ideal system that the yeah. founders, the framers came up with a second ideal system, and that is no direct taxes, only indirect taxes. All right. If you have that kind of system, uh, then the government decides how you're going to pay your taxes in what form. So the government says, OK, we're going to collect taxes this year. We want you to send your taxes. And let's say we've got this free market monetary system. The government says you can send your taxes in terms of bitcoins or you can send them in gold coins, but you're going to use this as the, as the, as the exchange rate and whatever one you want to use is fine. Or the government can just say, we're only going to accept gold coins for your payment of taxes, which means that people go have to go out and buy the gold coins to pay their taxes. Uh, so the, the government would make that decision in that case or in the ideal case is what the one I raised. People donate to the government whatever money monetary feel they want, or if they want to donate records, you know, what the heck? Yeah. And, and that's the other thing, right? Like in that sort of system that you just described, government in essence would be forced to publish their, uh, their balance sheet, right? They would say, hey, we've got expenditures. These are anticipated, like any corporation does, these are our anticipated expenditures. We, we, need, we need this much for paying people's salaries. We need this much to uh, pay the electric bill. And, uh, you know, if you want your court systems up and running, uh, here's what that bill is going to be for the upcoming fiscal year. And then, you know, they, they can they can go like that. So, yeah, there'd be total transparency. Yeah, yeah, there'd be right. honesty in the system. And, and like I say, you look at across the spectrum of, of America, most Americans are not anarchists. They believe in government. And we just have to have that faith that if people are not forced to do so, they're going to say it's like churches. You know, who funds the churches? Nobody's fun, forced to fund the churches, but the right. wealthier people do. They don't control what goes on in those churches. Ministers control, but people still donate. The poor still go there and receive the church services. Um, people believe in government. And so I have no doubts that the freest society in history, one of these days, is going to be one where government is voluntarily supported, just like churches are. Right, sort of like a night watch state, like Nachik described, or, or just like a constitutional republic. Like, I, I honestly think if we went back to what the founders initially established and envisioned, we'd be in a much better place. Uh, you did mention that you're for the repeal of uh, Social Security and Medicare. But one of the lines that I have to say, you, in reading your policy positions, you kind of educated me on a little bit. 
you know, one of my favorite lines was always social security is nothing more than a government approved Ponzi scheme. But in reading one of your blog entries, you made the distinction. It is really not like a Ponzi scheme. And at first I said, what's wrong with Jacob? Was he smoking something that day when he wrote that? I, you know, I would think that would be one of the things as an economics professor and as a libertarian that you would be, uh, but very interesting. Briefly, tell me, why is social security not a Ponzi scheme? All right. Well, a Ponzi scheme is, is like, it occurs in the investment world. Uh, a guy says, hey, I got this great investment. I'll pay you 40% return on it. Send me your money. So you send him a million dollars. And at the end of the first year, he owes you your 40% return. Uh, he's gone out and bought mansions and Cadillacs and BMWs and so forth. He doesn't have the money. So, but he's got new money coming in where he's promising to pay the 40%. And so he uses that new money to pay off the, the old guy, the first guy. And then uh, this, this system keeps going on and on until finally at the very end, it's like musical chairs. Somebody, people say, uh, we're suspicious. We're not going to give you any money. And then the gig's up. Uh, it it all fares out, and whoever is caught holding the bag loses. Social Security is not an investment. It's a welfare program. It's no different right. from food stamps or education grants or farm subsidies. Nobody invests in anything. They've taxed you, uh, just like they tax everybody, and they use those taxes to fund this welfare program. So nobody's investing in anything. That's why I say it's not a Ponzi scheme, uh, that when a senior reaches retirement age or Social Security age, he is relying on the government to tax the younger people, his children and their grand and his grandchildren, and say, give their money to me. And therefore, it's not a Ponzi scheme. It's just, it's just a straight welfare program. But it's immoral. It, it's an immoral program. It's, it's like any other welfare state program or socialist program. I mean, this, this is the crown right. jewel of American socialism. I say it just needs to be repealed. Socialism has been the bane of mankind. This is one of the worst programs we could have ever adopted. Look what it's done to seniors. It's made them hopelessly dependent on the state. And it's created this mindset of, oh my gosh, without socialism, we'd, there'd be people dying in the streets. It's nonsense. You could repeal Social Security today, which is what we should do, and everybody would be fine. You, you just have to restore in this country that faith and freedom. This country lived without Social Security and Medicare for more than 100 years. Nobody died in the streets, you know? Right, uh, right, right, right. It's interesting that, and I think, again, to quote Milton Friedman, those who object to liberty uh, have a fear of liberty, meaning that, uh, you know, it's an underlying foundational belief that liberty can't work. And, and I think that is a shame. And that is what's holding people back. Okay. Let, let's let me, talk about... Let, uh, hang on. Yeah. I can't let you get by with, with that one. That is an absolutely profound observation. It's absolutely... Pro and it goes to the center of this Libertarian Party that we were talking about earlier. Because if Libertarians don't believe that freedom works, how do we expect to convince other people that freedom works? Exactly. And, and when you say, oh, no, we can't pull the rug out from these people, what you're really saying is we can't trust freedom to work. And right. that's a bad message. That is a super bad message. That's that 98 to 99 percent of people that are rejecting this bad message because freedom does work. And that's what we've got to convince the American people of. That's, that's great. I love that you said that because, look, I think people like you and I, 
we believe that. We believe that if you gave liberty a chance and if people adopted the principles of liberty, we'd all be better off. Certainly we were at the time when we had more of it and less government. So uh, it is interesting. And, and when you work with younger people, you talk to younger people, uh, I don't think they have that trust in liberty. They really don't. Well, um, and the, the other aspect is the compassion argument. Oh, yeah. Jacob, you lack compassion. Really? What, where's the compassion in the IRS? Where's the compassion yeah. in the Social Security Administration? Who is being compassionate when they're stealing from young people to give to, to seniors? Nobody's right. being compassionate. Compassion comes from the willing heart of the individual. Children honoring mother and father on a voluntary basis. I mean, look around. Seniors get dementia, Alzheimer's, cancer. And in most cases, I'd say 98% of the cases, children respond. They, they, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to pay back to your parents what they gave to you. And right. this is what Social Security destroys, is that, that concept of family values that, yeah. that really form the foundation of a society. Yeah. You know, it's really, uh, just to diverge a little bit, it's really interesting. When I was younger, uh, my mother would say this phrase from ancient Greek to me. It was the adoro avaron. And um, the literal translation translation would be a gift ungifted. And by that she meant if you're compelled to do someone a kindness, if you're compelled to give someone a gift, it's truly not a kindness. It's truly yeah. not a gift. That's awesome. That it has to come from the, the heart. And it's those two words in ancient Greek that sort of put forth exactly what you just said, right? Have trust that without Social Security, without this – forced wealth transfer from a one generation to another generation to another generation, uh, that is not compassion because it's being coerced. It's being compelled. The, the correct form for compassion would be, hey, let me help someone, even if it's one person in my neighborhood that I can help, whether it's buying them an extra bit of groceries or helping them cross the street or helping them with a project around the house. That is a more compassionate gift than all the trillions we've spent on poverty programs since, just say, the great society of, of Lyndon Johnson, right? Poverty has essentially stayed the same in this country. The poverty levels have stayed the same despite trillions being funneled through these programs. So if, if anyone wants to think of it in that way, uh, learn yourself some ancient Greek, Doro Averon, and uh, big ups to my mother that as a young man, she drilled that into my head. I never realized the wisdom of it until this very moment, believe it <laughs> stuff. All right, let's move on. Civil liberties, uh, you're for the abolishment of the CIA, FBI, NSA. I think most people listening to this right now would agree with you when it comes to domestic, uh, the domestic activities of these organizations. I think most people say, I don't want warrantless spying. I don't want phone taps without court orders and get rid of these Patriot Act nonsense. Um, so I'll skip that and ask you to, again, address those, those, those elephants in the room ideologically. Uh, hey, Jacob, there's all these nations around the world that want to do us harm. Uh, they, they, you know, there's, na there's naturally aggressive organizations uh, or other governments out there. Uh, shouldn't we know what they're up to? Shouldn't we be, even if we're not militaristic about it, should we at least be aware of their activity, something like what the CIA might have have been tasked to do uh, to make us aware of potential uh, uh, external danger to this nation. No, it, it's it's an it's an exaggerated threat, and 
to use that as the excuse for the destruction of our rights and liberties is unjustified. Look, there is absolutely no danger whatsoever of any nation state today invading and conquering the United States. It, it just cannot happen. No, nobody, la nobody has the, the military, the money, the troops, the interest of crossing the oceans and invading and conquering the United States. They were trying to convert Russia into that role with this invasion of Ukraine, saying, oh my gosh, they're going to conquer Eastern Europe again. They're going to sweep across France and they're going to come to the United States. The Reds are coming again. They can't even conquer Ukraine, which has just decimated this, this case for Russia being this big, powerful force. Now they're trying to do the same thing with China. There is no way that China has the military capability to cross the Pacific and invade the United States. So what do we have this giant national security state form of governmental structure for? Obviously, Latin America is not going to invade the United States. Canada is not going to do so. We should have dismantled this thing at, at the very least at the end of the Cold War. We never really should have brought it into existence. Now, what do I mean by national security state? This is an alien form of governmental structure we have here. And this is what one of the things that distinguishes my campaign from all of my opponents in this race. We're talking about the Pentagon the vast military industrial complex, the CIA, the NSA, to a certain extent, the FBI. We never had this form of governmental structure. It, this is a totalitarian governmental structure that wields omnipotent power, the power of assassination, torture, indefinite detention. It's no different from the totalitarian governmental structure that exists in North Korea, let's say, except that you have this veneer, this appearance that you've got the president, the executive branch, and the legislative branch, and the judiciary running things. This is pure nonsense. You mentioned that we started out as a limited government republic. That was our founding governmental system until it was converted into this monstrosity. To get this country back on the right track, we need to restore that limited government republic, which comes with just a small basic military force. Um, if somebody's conjuring up in... Um, Venezuela, the, the possibility or Cuba of invading the United States, I'm not going to lose one bit of sleep over those, those thoughts and those plots. How are they going to do that? It's, it's ridiculous. And so we have this huge apparatus that has destroyed our freedom through state-sponsored assassinations. The CIA, John, is the most evil agency in the history of this country. MKUltra, uh, torture, indefinite detention, assassination of President Kennedy, assassination of Patrice Lumumba, regime change operations against democratically elected regimes. It has no place in a free society. They should have gone out of business at the end of the Cold War because that was their justification. And the fact that they've continued, now they've brought us ever closer to nuclear war in Ukraine, just like they did with the Cuban Missile Crisis. I say get rid of this apparatus entirely. There's no chance that anybody's going to invade the United States. And here's the other thing. They are the ones that have produced the anger and hatred. When you say, oh, these people in other countries are conjuring up bad things, why are they doing that? It's because what Martin Luther King correctly called the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is inflicting violence on people around the world. We don't know how many people the Pentagon and the CIA have killed in our lifetime, but it's got a number in the millions. And that's nothing to scoff at. That's what generates the anger and the hatred toward this country. If you dismantle this machine and it's ever in never ending series of forever wars, then you get back to a, a place where people 
respect this country and love Americans. I've traveled around the world. People love Americans. They just despise this government. And I don't blame them because I despise it too. <laughs> I, it's very hard to love our government in its current state and, and probably has been for the last 50 years. Well, let's put it this way, at least since Roosevelt, you know, you can kind of uh, make that case. Uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, drug laws, 100% repeal. Let me again, th- since you seem to like to tackle the elephants in the room with these things, throw this one at you. Jacob, are you advocating the sale of flak tar heroin to 12-year-olds? Oh, that's too difficult. I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, the, 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 the issue of children's rights is a very complex one, very very difficult one. Um, what I favor is a total free market in the distribution, possession, sale, whatever of drugs. And we're and let's just limit it to adults for right now. Right. That this war has been a disaster. I mean, I told you I was a lawyer. I handled drug cases. I was a, I was a civil and criminal trial attorney. I mean, back in the seventies, they're 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 busting big drug lords and drug cartels. Here we are, you know, forty years later or so, still doing the same thing. Uh, people have a right to ingest whatever they want to ingest. If it's whatever you called it, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines. If somebody wants to ingest these things, that's the right of a free human being. Uh, And so on that alone, I would do it. But then you add to that the death and the violence and the destruction and the rise of the cartels. There would be no cartels except for the drug war. Uh, So yes, legalize it all. But the issue of children's rights are a completely different matter. But my, you know, we didn't have drug laws in the 19th century. So who told, who sold the drugs? Well, there was no drug cartels because they can't operate in a legitimate market. The pharmacies did. Now, the pharmacies are going to be very, very mindful of how consumers respond. If they're going to be selling to children, they know they're going to lose market share because parents are not going to like that. And so no responsible pharmacy is going to be selling drugs to children. But that's where you want the responsibility to lie in the hands of pharmacies, not drug dealers, drug cartels. Uh, If a pharmacy does that, I think it's going to go out of business very quickly for doing that. People are going to ostracize it. So, yeah, I agree with you. I I don't think people realize that you could get cocaine at your local pharmacist at the turn of the 20th century. You could get uh, opiates, you know, and things of that nature. And, um, it was relegated to the dark quarters of society. Proper, genteel society understood. Um, you didn't opium dens, where you know there's that phrase, opium dens, and so forth. Uh, but since you touched on it, it wasn't on my list originally. Children's rights. Do you believe in an age of consent? Yeah, I do. Um, but inevitably, it's going to be arbitrary. I mean, there, there's no way to come up with a well-defined libertarian answer as to what the age of consent would be. But yes, I do. I mean, I, I like the idea of 18, but you know, I can't tell you why that's better than 19 or 17 or whatever, but I can live with 18, but inevitably it's going to be, it's going to be arbitrary. But the concept of an age of consent, you're fine with. Absolutely. Because the idea is that children do not have the mental capacity to make decisions, uh, contracts and so forth. Uh, Now, you know, when I was practicing law, there was a process that you could go through uh, where you go to petition for the release of your minor disabilities. And a judge, after hearing evidence, can release you at, let's say, age 16 of those disabilities and let you go ahead and issue contracts and stuff. I kind of like that system. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I tend to agree with you. I personally think the age of consent should be 25, and that that's just based on neurological reasons. The brain is still developing up until around 25, uh, just biologically, right? Uh, but but whatever, you're right, whatever age, it's going to be arbitrary. Uh, but um, how, so how do you feel about the latest cases of whether or not children under 18 um, can get transitioned uh, from male to female, either whether it's by taking hormone blockers or surgeries or anything to that extent uh, without parental consent? Uh, I, I have serious problems with that because if it's a permanent change, I don't think that kid has the mental capability to make those decisions. I mean, if it's something temporary or whatever, maybe that's different, but for a life-changing, permanent life-changing situation, I think that people, uh, doctors should be prohibited from doing that. Now, I think that parents should be free, of course, to talk to their kids about these things. I don't see any problem with that. Um, I also could envision a situation where parents could go to court and say, this is what we want to do. We want to petition the court for permission to do this. The court appoints a guardian to represent the interests of the kid, an attorney to represent the interests of the kid. Um, I, I think that kind of system could be workable. But in what you outlined there, I would p- totally oppose uh, the unrestricted right. ability of children to do such a thing. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, thank you for answering that. Okay, the last one is going to be tricky, but it is one of these issues. Abortion. Uh, you mentioned uh, that you're a Catholic. So I assume that comes with the uh, with the usual admonition of, of uh, devout Catholics that you personally believe life uh, begins at conception. Therefore, abortion uh, probably is a no-no in your worldview. A, what is the libertarian position in your view on abortion? Uh, why don't we start with that? What is your what is the libertarian view on abortion? Well, there, there really isn't a libertarian view. And when I served on the platform committee back in the 90s, uh, I would estimate that about 70% of libertarians were pro-choice and about 30% were pro-life. Today, I'd say probably 65% are pro-choice and 55, uh, 45% are pro-life. That, that could be wrong. It could be 50-50. But it really depends on when you believe life begins. And, and if you believe that life begins before birth, then the libertarian position is you, you, the, the government exists to protect life from being killed. Um, I, I argue that earlier. That's a legitimate function of government. And so if you believe that life begins at conception, then you're going to prohibit somebody from engaging in abortion because you're killing a human being. And we right. libertarians say government should stop that type of thing. Uh, so obviously there's people of good conscience that believe that life begins after birth. And so it's a very difficult issue. Uh, but as a practical matter, now it's being returned to the States because of the court's ruling in Roe versus Wade. And ultimately it's going to be by majority vote. I, I don't see how it can be reconciled in any other way except majority vote state by state. So uh, just to tie it up, it sounds like you supported the overturning of yeah, I, I don't think the federal government really should have played any role in this at all. Uh, to me, it's, it's an issue for the people in each state. It's still not a satisfactory solution for people. I mean, a person that believes life begins at conception, obviously he's not going to be happy to be living in a pro-choice state. A pro-choice person's not going to be like living in a, a pro-life state. But 
that's one of the imperfections of a democratic system. There's, there's no way to please everybody on this type of, of particular issue. Uh, I, 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 you know, I think that what we really need to do in, in the context of debating this is, is focus on, I mean, I see one issue voters. I've seen this before. Oh, where do you stand on abortion? Well, this is what I believe. Oh, I could never vote for you. Well, that's a cop out because there's a lot of other things that are destroying our freedom, like the national security establishment, these forever wars that, that they produce, uh, the, the welfare state, the warfare state, the drug war. And so these are things we need to focus on as well. And that's, that's why I, I continue to focus my primary attention on these aspects of what the government's done to destroy our lives and liberties and continues to do so. Yeah, I, I also agree. should point out there's a lot of hypocrisy here, like with Republicans who sure. pride themselves on being pro-life. Look what they did to the children of Iraq, both them and the Democrats, with their sanctions. They killed hundreds of thousands of children and with these sanctions. Now, how can you say that you're pro-life when you're cavalierly saying, oh, we don't care about killing those children? And, and coming to mind is Madeleine Albright, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, infamous statement that the deaths of half a million Iraqi children from the sanctions was worth it. And no Republican condemned her, no Democrat condemned her. She needed to be condemned for that statement, but she was expressing their view. So how can you be pro-life for uh, an unborn child when you're over there, you don't give a hoot for a born child, as long as he's yeah. a foreign-born child? Well, I was going to say that's the distinction. It, they weren't American babies. So. <laughs> Exactly. Apparently, Jesus only loves American babies. Um, but uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I kind of understand your position because I've given this a lot of thought over the course of my life, so to speak. And I've come to the conclusion that abortion is an unresolvable issue, both politically, morally, societally. Um, unless, of course, we can get an exact time when life begins. If there's some way scientifically to say life begins here then I think you have an answer. You have a solution to the, to the abortion question. Until that point, my personal belief sort of aligns with yours, but my justification for it is um, I don't know when life begins. Therefore, I will attempt to take the, the option that has the most um, uh, ability to undo harm, right? So the way I see it is if life begins before birth and I allow abortions, there's no coming back from killing a child. Whereas if I'm wrong and life doesn't start until birth, but I've prevented an abortion, uh, then, there, you know, we can, the kid can be given up for abortion. The mother can be made whole financially for her troubles, et cetera, et cetera. So I tend to take that position that, you know, I don't know the answer. I never will in my lifetime. Therefore, I take uh, the, the option. I choose the option that has the most ability to, to correct wrongs. Uh, okay. Uh, last one. You mentioned, you touched on it earlier, complete open borders on immigration, I assume? Absolutely. Abolish the Border Patrol, the Immigration Service, and all restrictions on the free movements of goods and services uh, across borders and, and people, uh, the free <laughs> movements of people across borders. You're not afraid of a dirty bomb being snuck across the Canadian border or the Mexican border? I have lost absolutely no sleep over that prospect at all. And in fact, even though you have this police state, immigration police state, mostly on the southern border. I told you I grew up there, and, and there is an immigration police state there. Anybody that wants to bring a dirty bomb across, I guarantee you, is going to be able to do that, despite this police state. Um, and again, like I 
mentioned earlier, the reason people want to do this is because we live under a government that Martin Luther King called the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. If they'd stop inflicting this violence, people wouldn't have the incentive to sneak that dirty bomb into the country. Right. And it bears repeating. The reason people are trying to get into this country is because this is such a great country. And people have made the choice. It's better to live in America than where we currently are. And uh, contrary to popular belief, this country is nowhere near full. The majority of this country needs people. Uh, the middle of the country needs people. We need more immigrants, not fewer. Well, uh, okay. John, I told you that yeah. I grew up on the border. So I've yeah. seen this situation firsthand. I've seen the death and the suffering. And we, we often forget the death toll. That's, that's the real morality taking place here. There's people dying because of this thing. And they're dying and drowning in the Rio Grande, or they're dying in thirst in, in the, the desert, or in the backs of some tractor trailer, or with a bullet fired by a border patrol. None of this would be happening under a system of open borders. And what I've told people all my life, I've seen this crisis all my life. Half, almost half my life I spent on the border. And um, I've told people that this crisis, this perpetual crisis, is rooted in your system which is a socialist system. It's based on the socialist principle of central planning, you know, planning how many people, right. what their credentials are going to be. How can there not be a crisis? Ludwig von Mises had a perfect term for this, planned chaos. Right. And if you want to get rid of this crisis, just open the borders to the free movements of people, get rid of this police state that exists down there with highway checkpoints and warrantless searches of farms and ranches. Your crisis would be open over immediately. Just let the free market decide how many people need work or are going to find work and so forth. The free market produces the best of everything, and it's the only solution. And I've emphasized this during the entire time I've been a libertarian. The only solution is open borders. There's no other solution. There you go. Thank you for that. Okay. Thank you for spending all this time explaining your position to us, your background. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. But now it's time for something I call silly questions. I'm going to fire out five questions at you. There's no right or wrong answers. And answer them any way you like. Uh, who would you say has been the most calamitous president in U.S. history and why? I think it would be a close call. Well, let me settle on Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, yeah, Roosevelt converted America's uh, economic system to a welfare state, which has been calamitous. It was just one of the worst things. It's, right. it's not as bad as the conversion to a national security state, but it comes close. Not to mention the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that he converted America's monetary system to a paper right. money standard, which has been disastrous. Absolutely. I, I like that answer. Um, what is your favorite recreational activity? Not on the campaign trail. How do you how do you unwind? Well, I'm a duplicate bridge player. And, okay, uh, that's that's my passion for hobbies. I love I love playing bridge. I think it's the greatest card game ever ever invented. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, if you could have a drink with anyone, dead or alive, in history, who would it be? I would say Ludwig von Mises. Uh, he's, uh, for your viewers that don't know Mises, he was uh, the greatest economist who's ever lived. Uh, just total principle, comp uncompromising, 
and uh, he really has been a powerful influence in my economic thinking in terms of favoring a free market way of life. That's fair. Um, Mises is a good thing. I thought you might have gone with either Friedman or Rothbard. Maybe Rothbard would have been a better time with a drink in his hand. I don't know, but uh, well, Rothbard Mises was is... Martha. Uh, Rothbard was an anarchist, and and I'm a minarchist. I mean, I believe in limited government. He believed in no government. And Friedman, the, the, the whole Chicago school of reform, um, I mean, Friedman has played a big role in my intellectual development. And I actually met Friedman and a couple of times and just the nicest guy you'd ever meet. He was so pleasant at conversing with me. And he treated me like I was like somebody. It was really amazing. Right. He's just a great guy. But he did not have the impact on me because he advocated things that, that are just reforms like vow, school vouchers. This is just a a socialist program. And I took him to task on this in an article. I said, this is just another socialist program. And he, he actually <laughs> addressed my point in, in a speech he delivered. And I was like, wow, I got a Nobel Prize winner addressing my critique I, I, of vouchers. I was going to say, if you're going to get scolded by anyone in your lifetime, it might as well be Milton Friedman, right? Exactly. Uh, um, okay. Uh, more damaging to liberty, John Maynard Keynes or Alan Dershowitz? Oh, Keynes, uh, by far. Keynes, uh, by far, right? Yeah, yeah. Keynes just destroyed the, the monetary economic system with his ideas. And, uh, and Dershowitz does have some redeeming characteristics in terms of civil liberties. So uh, I don't see any redeeming characteristics with respect to Keynes. <laughs> with respect to Keynes. Supposedly on his deathbed, he was ready to, um, to uh, go back on his... Uh, on his economic theories, but he died before. This is according to Hayek and Friedman, I think. Um, his general consumption theory, and he was ready to refute that, and then he died in the middle of his lecture tour. <laughs> Supposedly oh, they wow. found the notes in the margins of his notes or something like that, but very interesting story there. Again, maybe apocryphal, I'm not 100% sure. And last but not least, do you have a favorite sport? Uh, the spectator sport where I watch it? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, baseball. I, I, I love baseball. I played a little league when I was a kid. It wasn't that great, but I, I watched Ken Burns's documentary on baseball many years ago or something, but I don't know, eight or nine years ago. And oh, yeah. I fell in love with baseball again. Uh, so I, I, I love baseball. My, my That was a very uplifting documentary for those of us who have grown jaded with baseball over the years. Do you have a favorite team? Washington Nationals, of course. And, Nationals. and I was I was a, a partial season ticket holder. I, I gave it up uh, later, but when during the World Series, I went actually went to one of the World Series games with with the Astros, and we, of course we lost it because they lost all the home games both teams did. But at least I was there. But it, you know, as a Texan, were you really upset that the Astros won? No, I was conflicted because my team when I was a kid was the Astros. I mean, I would stay up late at night listening to the Astros games on, on radio. And uh, I went to an Astros game in the old Astrodome. So, yeah, I had conflicted feelings. <laughs> there, there you go. Jacob Hornberger, thank you so much for taking the time for this interview. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed our talk. Please let everyone know where they can go to find more information about your campaign, about you personally, and where they might be able to contribute. Well, let me thank you, John. This has been absolutely a delightful, enjoyable interview. And thank you for the honor of having me on your show. I, I know you've had a very illustrious career because I looked you up. And uh, so it's, it's, it's I find it interesting that you're doing these shows in the context of your career. But thank you for having me on. Uh, if people want to learn more about my campaign, jacobforliberty.com. And I'd love to have all the support I can get.
That's great. Thank you uh, once again, Jacob Hornberger. And for everyone else out there, thank you for joining us once again for the big questions. It's your host, Big John. Join us again next time when we'll have someone, hopefully as interesting as Mr. Hornberger, join us for another conversation. Until then, peace, everyone.